Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I'm professor at Grove City College in Western Pennsylvania, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, uh, Todd Pruitt, a PCA uh, pastor to the furries, I think, wasn't that? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I ran into them in uh, Washington, D.C., yeah, that's true. Uh, and they were very appreciative of the pastoral care you provided. They so were I've very excited, especially the reindeer I, uh, I shared an elevator with. So, I remember yeah. the reindeer text. Uh-huh. Yeah. I had tears rolling down my <laughs> eyes with that, the photo particularly. The gift uh, that keeps on giving. And also with Amy Bird, the housewife theologian and lead singer of the punk band Feminist Outrage Machine. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we are delighted today to have, uh, well, actually, uh, a man vying with Michael Allen for the most frequent appearances on our Ooh. podcast. <laughs> and somebody, I think, who's coming on for the first time. Uh, yes. Good friend of ours, Kelly Capic, uh, who is, as listeners will know, Professor of Theological Studies at Covenant College, where he has taught since 2001. His career was actually given a tremendous start, I believe, by the external examiner of his PhD <laughs> in London. Um, so I'm nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah. And uh, his colleague, Brian Fickett, who is the founder and president of the Chalmers Centre at Covenant College, as well as a professor of economics and community development at Covenant College. And just say the Chalmers Centre, of course, is named after Chom- Thomas Chalmers, the great 19th century Scottish Presbyterian leader who was the, the founding moderator of uh, my wife and my own home denomination of the Free Church of oh, Scotland. So. I thought it was I thought it was Jimmy Chalmers, the donut king of St. Louis, a major donut. <laughs> I think he was a distant cousin. Oh, okay. so was, okay. uh, That's a I'm assuming well. it's it's Thomas and not Jimmy that the center's named after here, Brian. Uh, so, it but, is Thomas. Yeah. Oh, the donuts are sounding pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> right. But uh Brian and Kelly are authors most recently of a book, Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And it's that book that we want to chat to them about today. So uh, welcome to the show, guys. And uh, perhaps you'd just like to to spend a couple of minutes telling us uh, why you wrote this book and what you hope to have achieved by it. Yeah, this is Brian. Um, About 10 years ago, I was privileged to co-author a book called When Helping Hurts, and uh, God used that book in ways we never could have dreamed, and um, many people have benefited from that book, but there's been a lot of developments since that book came out. And, and I want to mention two. The first is, uh, so many people have come up to us and said, you know, I'm working in Nigeria with an unreached people group, and they have this very particular problem. What do we do? People want very specific answers to their very particular contexts. And the reality of it is, there's no way to address all of those questions. I don't know the answer to those questions. You have to kind of figure it out in the context of your situation. And so uh, I realized what people were missing was kind of the big picture story. Um, uh, I think philosophers might even call it a meta-narrative. What, what is the goal? And how can we go about achieving that goal? How does God typically work in his world? And so people are kind of missing that bigger story, that, that kind of that operating system that uh, was underlying when helping hurts. And so we wanted to write a book 
that would kind of get at that operating system, that would impart wisdom so that people could live out God's story in their very particular context. So people needed a sense of the story. But then a second thing has happened. Um, I think many of us have a profound sense that something has gone deeply wrong in America. Even though our incomes and our wealth have, have continued to increase, there are a number of indicators that people's happiness is on the decline. Uh, mental illness is on the rise. Uh, families are falling apart. Communities are fragmented. The political process is deeply broken. There's a sense that the American dream isn't working. And there's a sense that we need a different story. And we need a different story for our lives. And then there's a kind of a little third piece in here that's kind of ironic. We don't really have a very good story for our own lives. We mm -hmm. don't really have a very good story for the poor, but we somehow think that the goal is to turn the poor into us, mm -hmm. to make uh, uh, low-income communities like affluent communities, to turn Uganda into the United States. And so it's kind of like we don't really like our story very much, but we're going to invite the poor into that story <laughs> that isn't really making us flourish. And so <laughs> we wanted to tell uh, God's story. God's story of what is the good life? What does human flourishing look like? How does God typically go about achieving that story? And then flesh out some very practical applications, some implications for how we might work amongst the poor in light of God's transcendent story. Yeah, you have some really good critique in the beginning of the book about our assumptions behind our efforts in alleviating poverty. And, and you really do get at that, you know, how we try to make people just like us. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the stories of change that you've critiqued within the evangelical church as well. well. Yeah, there's there's kind of a the, the mainstream story of economics uh, underlies all of this, and and I think it's profoundly influenced Western civilization and through the process of globalization, the whole planet. Quite frankly, the basic story of my discipline is that the human being is fundamentally material in nature; that the good life is more consumption. And that there's essentially uh, two ways to have more consumption. One is that somebody can give you more stuff, or the second way is that you can earn more stuff and uh, and have a higher income than consume more. And and so the way that economists think is generally in that framework. And I would argue the institutions that we've created for our economic lives reflect that framework. And so when we approach the poor, that generally, and I'm, I'm painting with outrageously broad strokes here, mm -hmm. but that generally frames how we work amongst the poor. We either give them things or we help them to earn more things so that they can join the American mainstream. And I think there's plenty of evidence that that, that basic strategy of material prosperity works for a lot of us, uh, economic growth, uh, and quite frankly, capitalism, Western-style capitalism has resulted in massive reductions in material poverty, both in the West and around the world. Um, the handout strategy, strategy doesn't often work that great, but the um, get people into the mainstream, help them work and earn more money, uh, by and large, uh, has had tremendous success and, and, and uh, has reduced poverty worldwide at unprecedented levels. And I don't want to downplay the reality of that. Uh, even the past 25 years, we've seen greater reductions in material poverty uh, than the world has ever seen. Uh, many people believe that should globalization continue, we might actually move everybody above uh, the lowest level of poverty, $1.90 per day over the course of the next 30 years. And so that's a real thing. It's something to be grateful for. It's something to applaud. But again, something's gone wrong. 
we've got this sense that uh, we're not really flourishing, that this sort of hyper-individualistic, hyper-materialistic story isn't really conducive to human flourishing. Well, then when, when the church uh, in the West encounters this, we've got a, a bit of a problem as well. In the book, we describe this, uh, by a term from my friend Daryl Miller, as evangelical Gnosticism. We, the church has essentially reduced the Lordship of Jesus Christ to the spiritual realm, so we worship Jesus on Sunday morning, and then Monday through Saturday, we don't have much of a story to fall back on. And it's particularly problematic if you reduce the gospel to its legal dimensions. If we reduce the human problem to, uh, I've sinned against a holy God, I have a legal problem with that holy God, Christ's death and resurrection solves that legal problem for me. Of course, both Kelly and I embrace all of that. That's a profoundly important dimension of the gospel. But if we reduce the gospel to that, um, then one becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, uh, experiences justification, and then the alarm clock goes off on Monday morning, you've got to do something. And you get out of bed on Monday morning, what do you do? And we don't really have a very good story for that in much of evangelical Christianity. And so we default to the story of Western naturalism, which is this kind of materialistic, hyper-individualistic way of being in the world. And so we live in many ways the way that the culture around us lives, and it, it filters into all aspects of our lives, including our economic lives and our approaches to the poor. And so we end up in our part of evasion strategies with things like, well, I'm, my answer here is very long, I'm sorry, but we, we end up with, with some really goofy programs. Uh, um, I'm gonna, my primary spiritual gift is offending people. So, so, so I'm gonna <laughs> Welcome to Mortification right of Spin. In every church that you encounter, there is some program that's been around for 40 years that quite frankly doesn't do any good. It's never done any good and everybody knows it doesn't do any good. And so if you ask anybody, why are you doing this? Let me give you an example. It might be a soup kitchen. And, and there are, can be roles for soup kitchens, by the way. But let's imagine you've got a church that's been ladling soup for 40 years. You've got the same people coming and getting soup day in and day out for 40 straight years. They've never stopped needing uh, uh, soup handouts. If you ask people in charge of that ministry, why are you doing this? This is what you'll hear. Well, we know the ministry is really empowering anybody, but we want to show Christ's love to get the chance to share the gospel so their souls can be saved. And so we are using a soup kitchen as a hook to get the chance to address their legal problem before a holy God. And I think there's a, a fuller understanding of what a human being is, a fuller understanding of what Christ is doing in the world that should shape how we're working uh, with those low-income people towards a fuller, more relational, more empowering approach that feeds into God's story in a more authentic way. Uh, let me ask, um, one of the uh, problems in the history of Protestant liberalism is that oftentimes these particular denominations and churches would collapse the gospel into, you know, just some of its implications. And 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 so, we, obviously, we, we would want to avoid that. How do we avoid that as, if, if there are pastors and elders and church members listening to this, as there will be? Um, who want very much to hold jealously onto the heart of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, the ordinary means of grace, and at the same time uh, be really good and faithful neighbors to, to those around them, uh, particularly those who might have very significant needs. What are some ways that, that a church can do that, can be engaged thoughtfully and helpfully, um, and at the same time 
uh, avoid some of the pitfalls of of Protestant liberalism, if that makes sense. This is Kelly. Uh, That's a good question. There's definitely historical precedent for the problem of classic, you know, this isn't a slander, you know, Protestant liberalism, uh, liberalism with a capital L is a self-identifying marker in 19th century. And, and they did, you can take particular aspects from the biblical story, isolate them, uh, deny the significance of the cross of Christ, some of that, and that, that becomes a problem. It's a truncated gospel. I, I think that's, for most of your listeners, that's probably not a temptation. The reality is, though, there, there is a similar problem <laughs> of truncating the gospel on the other end to believe that the good news actually doesn't have anything to do with this world now, with our bodies, with our communities, and that kind of thing. Obviously, this could be a much larger conversation, but your audience is pretty theological. So I would say what lies behind that problem Mm -hmm. is is when we disconnect Redeemer from Creator. Okay. And so Jesus, the Messiah, comes, and when John the Baptist is in prison, says, wait, I I thought this is the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. I'm in prison. He's out doing stuff, but it doesn't doesn't seem like he's going to bring this kingdom I thought he was. And and as you know, Jesus says, well, you tell him, tell him what you see. The blind see, the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the euangelion, the good news is preached to the poor. Yeah. Well, you know, this, Jesus is drawing on Isaiah there to help identify himself as Messiah, but it's also connecting him. He is the one through whom all things are made. And he cares about redemption in this more holistic way. And I I worry a little bit that we've seen those things as proofs that he's God or something, when actually it also reflects the heart of God. God loves his creation. He cares about it. So we're trying to help think through the gospel in its fullness, never less than justification by faith alone. But what what does that look like? to, to really think in terms of creation, fall, redemption, consummation mm-hmm. ideas. Here's one of our test cases. What does the Lord's Supper have to do with poverty alleviation? Because actually, we think it does. Mm-hmm. The goal for poverty alleviation is not that poor people simply will have more stuff, but it's that the rich and poor, the Jew, the Gentile, the slave, the free, will come together and feast on the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And that's a real meal that 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 does all kinds of things. And we're trying to avoid false dichotomies. And, and I'm just thinking through because I, I think your critique of the American dream is is appropriate just because it's so laden with a, a lot of unhelpful things as well as um, a, appeals to a lot of our our common idolatries. How would you in terms of thinking about, uh, say, uh, helping people in you know, Rwanda or, or a very different kind of culture. How do we, how do we differentiate between the American dream, which again can be laden with a lot of our idolatries and those things that are helpful about say Western civilization. Mm -hmm. Um, If, if does, does that make sense? Because part of, of what you'll be dealing with in in helping uh, the person in, in Rwanda is, is how to oftentimes get them to change a, a worldview that is magical in its orientation or laden with a lot of sorcery. Right. And while we're not trying to turn the Rwandan into an American by any means, right. um, are, are we able to say that there are some things that are oftentimes 
connected to what we might call Western civilization that we might have to to teach or or am I off base here at all? Uh, this is Brian again. No, I, I, you are definitely um, uh, hitting on some important ideas. I was just in uh, Togo, actually, and Kelly's wife, Tabitha, was on this trip with me, and we were out in a village, uh, very, very, very remote part of Togo. And by God's grace alone, the Chalmers Center's work had had some impact on this village. And we were sitting at a church that had been planted as a result of some of our work in a village that was completely immersed in witchcraft, voodoo, mm-hmm. demonic worship. And now there's a church that's in the middle of this. And a woman stands up and says, I was a priestess of the snake God mm-hmm. a year ago. Wow. And I found Jesus Christ and, and he is, he has pulled me out of all of that. And now I'm flourishing in a way, I'm seeing the word flourishing, but I'm mm-hmm. flourishing in a, in a way I never did before. And, and here's my husband. And he comes forward and his arms are covered in scars from cutting himself with glass Mm -hmm. uh, as part of demonic rituals. And and so part of uh, voodoo, part of what some people would call animism or traditional religion is this idea that the spiritual realm controls the physical realm and that the human being really doesn't have much agency. And and so life is lived not as one who has dominion over the created order, but as one who is sort of hunkered down, trying to not offend anybody. And and so it's it's kind of a don't make progress because you might get somebody ticked off at you and that somebody might be one of your ancestral spirits. And so it's it really locks people into uh, their current state of poverty because progress isn't something you can achieve and you really don't even want to because somebody's going to get upset with you if you do. So, uh, you know, pulling people out of that into a worldview that says there is human agency, the human being is created for dominion, the human being can affect change in our world, creating institutions that foster and support that is all part of some of the contributions of Western civilization to the entire world. I mean, secular economists, Nobel laureates right now would say the primary issue is to get people in low-income countries to understand they have human agency. So all of that is profoundly important, but then towards what end? That's the issue, towards what end? I don't want that person in Togo to believe that the goal of this liberation is ever-increasing amounts of material prosperity. The goal is to be what Scripture says we are. We're priest kings. And I think you would probably agree with this, Todd. I actually don't Personally, I don't think it's actually Western civilization, Mm -hmm. although some of it resonates. What everything Brian just described is the liberty of the gospel we find in the scriptures. Yeah, it's Christian. And so what I like behind your question is we do have to be careful that we don't. And, you know, anyone who studied the history of missiology sees this when we confuse the gospel with a particular culture. What the gospel proclaims is Christ over sin, death, and the devil. Mm -hmm. And sometimes in our circles, we've reduced the gospel to overcoming sin. But when you're in, when you're in a context talking to a woman who's, who's served as a priestess of the snake God, Mm -hmm. she needs to be told that Christ has power over the principalities and powers. Mm -hmm. And she's, you know, there is no fearing and that kind of stuff. And, and, and so, but that's not about becoming Western. That's about meeting the creator Lord. Yeah. And of course, I would, I would also want to add that so much of what we understand as, quote, Western civilization is actually uh, uh, Christianity from places like uh, uh, Asia Minor and, and Macedonia yeah. and Northern Africa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, but, but again, brothers, to what end? Right. 
So, so um, for me, a really key question when I'm with low-income people who are trying to move forward is to ask them, what are your goals? Mm. What are your dreams? And if all I hear is, um, I want to have a bigger business to make more money, I mean, at one level, I'm excited to hear that they have a sense of uh, oomph, a very technical term I just came up with here, <laughs> but there, there's some vision for, for moving forward is a profoundly important thing. But, but if that's the end goal, to me, that's the American dream. Mm-hmm. And it's going to end in destruction and despair. What I want to hear them say is service, mm-hmm. worship. I want to uh, help my neighbor. I want to glorify God. And if, if that's the goal, that profoundly impacts the shape of our poverty alleviation strategies. You know, Brian Myers, who's, who's a development expert, has written a marvelous book called Walking with the Poor. And in that book, he makes the point that at the end of the day, at the end of the day, in our poverty alleviation efforts, people will be worshiping something. Mm-hmm. And that thing that they are worshiping, we know from Scripture, is the thing that they will be conformed to over time, that we are transformed into the image of whatever we are worshiping. And so if we're worshiping uh, the American dream, we will become a certain kind of creature. If we're worshiping, if we're worshiping the malaria nets, the penicillin, the wells that are being drilled, we'll become a certain kind of creature. And so the trick is, to make people into worshipers of God Almighty who want to serve Him as priest kings 24-7. And and, and designing poverty alleviation strategies that foster that is actually profoundly difficult because in the West, we don't do that. We're we're not living lives of worship. And and, and so uh, because our model, the modus operandi that we've internalized is not that. We impose that on the poor. And yes, we can help them flourish in a purely material sense. We're good at that. That's not what flourishing looks like. Here's a sort of coming at it from a slightly different angle. Uh, one of the things, and I, I imagine you'll, you, you've had much more experience of teaching undergraduates recently than I've had, but my impression of undergraduates at Grove City College is uh, they don't need to be taught about the need to apply their Christian beliefs to the social context. Mm-hmm. What, what seems to me to be missing is that central Pauline note that so much of, of the suffering in this world for Paul is resolved because of his heavenly focus. Uh, you know, this light momentary affliction is is nothing compared to the eternal weight of glory which is to come. How do you see your book tying in with with what I would see as the the overwhelming New Testament emphasis? Ad- admittedly, there are, clearly Jesus heals people, he casts out demons, the apostles are doing similar works, but it seems to me the overwhelming focus in the New Testament in a culture that is profoundly hostile to the gospel is is primarily a, a heavenly one. And I find that very hard to communicate to young people. They don't need to be told that social justice, for example, is is a key debate to be had. They need to be reminded that, that life comes to an end and then there's a judgment. Uh, how do you see your book as fitting in with that kind of overall narrative? Because that's part of the yeah, Christian story too. Yeah. I, I hear I hear what you're saying, and and uh, it, it is true. I mean, it doesn't. Undergrads can get excited about 
trying to change the world. Right. Right. And we've all seen disillusionment when they, you know, whether it's a year or five years or 10 years, they're exhausted and they're worn out and the world hasn't changed much. And, um, and they think they're going to live forever as well. That's not a right, facetious right, right. comment, but death is very right. unreal to your average 20, 21 year old. Right. But, but having said that, I still honestly feel like it's just a false dichotomy because say, say for example, I, I taught a class this summer in Rome. And one of the things we do is talk about and read a lot about the first few centuries of the church. And as you know, so many of the early Christians were materially poor. Many were slaves, that kind of thing. Some, uh, we have examples, a slave becoming a bishop, right? (laughs) Well, potentially still a slave. You You have these things. And what's very interesting to me is they're definitely heavenly focused because their lives are very difficult. But at the same time, they are so profoundly invested in the community, in caring for the material needs of those they're with and their, and their communities. They don't see a heavenly focus as, a, as in any way undermining the investment in their community, but actually it's the anchor of it. it, it it's because of an eternal focus, you're liberated to pour yourself out for others. So, so it's something along those lines that I would, I would want to say now, part of what we are arguing is the church is actually way more central than people tend to think. And so it tends to be, you get this division, people who are active with uh, biblical justice, uh, social justice concerns, and are really angry with the church. And then you have people in the church who are really angry because they feel like, People who care about justice issues have forgotten, you know, Christ crucified or something like that. And we just want to say, what is going on here, (laughs) right? The church needs to be central. So uh, let me give you just one concrete example. Uh, When I was at New City Fellowship in Chattanooga, um, where Randy Neighbors has been a pastor for a long time, and Kevin Smith's pastor there right now, um, this is a a cross-cultural church, um, people from various socioeconomic settings. And when you become a member of the church, when you become a member as elders, we say to you, you will not starve. You will not go hungry mm-hmm. as one of our people. Mm-hmm. Now, I think that's striking because I've been in a lot of churches and I've never heard that before. And you know, why I've never heard it before because none of us really struggle with these things mm-hmm. <laughs> and in so many of our churches, but that's actually meaningful. Now, immediately we're like, I don't know, will people take advantage of that and stuff? No, no, no. This is what the church does. And there's a priority for the people of God. Um, but that's part of what we do. And one of the challenges is when we never know people who are poor, materially poor, when we aren't in these kind of situations, we, we get narrow. Mm-hmm. I think Paul's view of the collection is actually hugely in, uh, important in this whole discussion. I have a question of how that relates then locally in the church. As I was um, reading the book, um, I really love how you emphasize addressing the holistic person, you know, not just their material and physical needs, but their their spiritual needs and, and intellectual and, and the whole person. Um, mm-hmm. And it really made me question something that I've been thinking a lot about anyway, is how this vision of change and how we minister to people who are poor, how will that change the way that maybe we view uh, what deacons are supposed to be doing? Because, you know, we look at them as 
you know, so often I think it's easy to look at them as supposed to be meeting material needs mm-hmm. all the time. Um, but isn't there a discipling role in the office of deacon and, and, and what they're doing since they should be really ministering? And I see them doing that on a practical basis anyway um, to the whole person. It's a great question. You know, um, I, I got to tell you that when I look at um, how deacons are chosen across many of our reformed denominations, mm-hmm. it, it, it feels like we often look at who's going to guard the money. Right. Who, who's gonna, who's going to make sure that the money isn't uh, being misused? And then um, who's going to give the money out wisely? That approach, I, I think, really reflects a very material understanding of what the human being is, mm-hmm. a very material understanding of what um, the good life is and how that life is achieved. Once we take the perspective that I think is rooted in um, biblical revelation that the human being is a highly integrated body and soul who's wired, deeply wired for relationships so that we're this kind of body soul relational mm-hmm. thing. Once we take that perspective and once we take the perspective that the goal is for this body soul relational thing to experience deep uh, love in all of our relationships it really changes how we walk with people and what we hope for them at the end of the process. And so it moves uh, pretty quickly away from sort of a transactional, you need help with your electric bill, here's the check for your electric bill, and into, as you were mentioning, really a discipleship kind of process. How do we walk with people across time in highly relational ways that are deeply empowering And I might add that Thomas Chalmers uh, himself was into a very holistic approach to ministering to the poor. Uh, He had teams that went door to door in his parish that included um, Sunday school teachers and deacons and pastoral staff that because he understood the holistic nature of poverty. And so what we're talking about here, while some of it uh, can sound a bit abstract, can sound um, quite theological. It has really, really profound implications at a very practical level for what the deacons ought to be doing and what they sh- what their profiles and gifts should be. Yeah, that's good. And and um, fortunately, there are churches that are learning to do that. But mm-hmm. we obviously know that uh, there are others who I would hope want to continue to to, to grow to do that as we um, consider uh, our our budgeting process as a church. What are we doing? To make sure that we can say, Kelly, as you mentioned earlier, that we can say to the members of our church, look, you're not going to go hungry um, if you're a part of that church. I think that's a wonderful, concrete uh, goal for us to be able to say. And at the same time, uh, to say, Brian, as as you've kind of been mapping out for us, we're not here just to to pay your electric bill. We want to see you grow to become more like Christ. And and the church Mm -hmm. is, or at least should be and can be, uniquely positioned to have an answer for that. I know a very large uh, Presbyterian church that was giving away a million dollars a year mm-hmm. to people who were asking for help with their electric bills. Yeah. A million dollars wow. a year. <laughs> and as they started to reflect on their ministry, they realized they actually didn't know yeah. any of the people to whom they were giving the million dollars away mm-hmm. to. Right. And they said, you know, this is just crazy. Mm. And they moved into a much more relational approach in which they said, you know what, we're going to give away a whole lot less money 
but we're going to invest much more deeply in those who are willing to walk with us. And, and I think that's a, an approach that's more consistent with the, uh, our understanding what the human being looks like. And uh, it's more consistent with all we know about how human beings change. Yeah. And, and that, that's the thing that allows us not just to give a cup of cold water, but to give it in Jesus's name. Um, in in Jesus's name. And I would say in Jesus's community, yeah, yeah. You, you know, uh, we are wired for community and welcoming people into our community and saying, Taste and see that the Lord is good in a deep way with us. I think it's where the transformation happens. That's good. That's good. Well, obviously, it's a it's a conversation that that we can continue to have, and uh, it's a good conversation and a right conversation. And if you want to uh, know a little bit more about these things that we've been talking about, uh, then you can go to our website, mortificationofspin.org, and uh, register to win a copy of this new book by Brian Fickert and Kelly Capick entitled Becoming Whole, Why the Opposite of Poverty Isn't the American Dream. And I think you'll find much there that will challenge you, encourage you, and hopefully equip you uh, to be more engaged in some of these things that we've been talking about. Uh, Brian and Kelly, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, Kelly, we'll, we'll talk to you again, I guess, the next time you write a book. Um, You're hilarious. <laughs> but I do want to thank uh, uh, Brian and Kelly for uh, for joining us. It's been a good conversation and one that uh, is worth having. Thank you so much for joining us today. If, if you do go to thanks, our website, um, uh, please keep in mind that this podcast is a listener-supported podcast. And if you'd like to, uh, to make a donation so that the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals can continue to provide this sort of content, uh, then feel free to, to make a donation there. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll be happy to speak with you next time. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl, Todd, and Amy talk about the end of Exodus, Exodus 40. You know, God's house has been established on earth. It's filled with his glory. But there's this cliffhanger. Moses cannot approach the house of God. How can any human being approach God? Leviticus 9, we find Moses and Aaron first entering the house of God, referred to as a tent of meeting there. That interview is next time. Join us then. I got to confess up front that I wasn't important enough for anybody to send me a copy of the book. <laughs> so, so when Carl praises the book, you're going to yeah. know that he's full of it. So, is there anything different about that? <laughs> <laughs> like every other so, uh, Kelly, you are a professor at a, at an undergraduate institution, as now Carl is as well. And I, I just have a question for you. Carl has been wearing 
red pants, salmon-colored pants, this kind of nice. thing. And, and, Carl, man, and what he Carl says, color. what he says is that, well, I, I said salmon <laughs> instead of pink, to be kind. But what he says is that, well, now that he's teaching at an undergraduate institution, that that, that sort of thing, I guess, is expected. Is that true at all? <laughs> It's not expected, but I'm super proud of Carl right now. <laughs> thank you. Thank well, well, okay. So my question to you then, Kelly. I mean, that's you're being friendly, you're being kind to Carl, and we appreciate that. But do you wear pink or red pants? <laughs> I'll let Brian answer that. Okay. It's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> In other words, yes, I do have some of this. <laughs> yeah, Carl and I got them in Amsterdam together. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. It makes I, sense that those would be purchased in Amsterdam. I have to say, taking fashion tips from Todd Pruitt. Oh, please. It's like taking tips on economic strategy from Venezuela. <laughs> <laughs>